Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast created to help you succeed, especially if you create or market or price innovative products. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and pricing expert, and today I'm joined by Madhavan Ramanujam. He's a true pricing expert in a lot of people's minds. I met Madhavan probably 10 years ago when he was probably, uh, he was part of a team from Simon Kucher Partners engaged in a project at National Semiconductor. I, I was impressed with both Madhavan and Simon Kucher Partners and stayed in contact with them over the years. About a year ago, Madhavan wrote a book called Monetizing Innovation. And luckily he's agreed to talk with us for a few minutes. Welcome, Madhavan. Hi, Mark. Awesome to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. I have to tell you that I read a lot of business books and I read Monetizing Innovation cover to cover. And this is the best business book I've read in years. It, it actually oh combines <laughs> two topics that I'm very passionate about. I love pricing and I love innovation. And these are two things that we teach at Pragmatic Marketing as well. And I thought your book nailed it exceptionally well. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So instead of me gushing, let's hear from you. What's the key message from your book? Well, okay, why'd you write the book? We, we wrote the book because, uh, you know, time and again, we see companies building innovations, but not necessarily focusing on, you know, commercializing them or monetization. And pricing becomes such an afterthought that many entrepreneurs would just slap a price onto a product you know, throw it up against the wall and see see if it sticks. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. So I think pricing is more of a science than an art. Most people think of it as an art. As a company, we have been doing this for uh, 33 years at Simon Kutcher & Partners. We're the world's largest pricing strategy consulting firm. But we thought it was time to sort of, you know, kind of give back uh, some of our knowledge to uh, entrepreneurs and organizations and innovation experts uh, and truly wrote a book that we feel is you know, highly actionable uh, for actually making a difference. And to me, that is really the you know, key success criteria for our book. And, uh, and uh, that is kind, kind of why we wrote it. So. Yeah, it's nice when you can actually make a difference in people's lives and companies and in the world. So excellent. Excellent. Yep. Now, obviously, the key point of your book is we price first. Mm -hmm. we, we want to price before we go out and build the product, develop the product, design the product. And yet when we, when most companies think about pricing, it, as you said, it's always after the fact. Why is that? I think the, it probably a couple of reasons. First, I think it's just, you know, when you think about an innovation team or like uh, people coming up with some cool ideas, pricing is almost like that reality check, which dampens the enthusiasm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think people keep postponing this decision till it's too late. They built a product and they're like, oops, we need a price, you know, slap on a price and uh, throw it out in the market and see if it actually works. Um, I think as an entrepreneur, you really don't have a choice whether you'll, you will have a pricing conversation with, with your customers. Um, I think the only thing that is in your control is when you will have it. If you have it early, you're probably understanding whether people need your product, value your product, and uh, most importantly, willing to pay for your product and understanding that information gives you some clues on how to even design your product around that information. And then you launch your product in the market with a lot more success because you've already had the conversation and you're probably more focusing on how to accelerate growth and adoption. If you didn't um, and, and you chose to have the conversation after the fact, 
you're just hoping to monetize, you truly don't know whether you will. And that's really the you know, key thesis of the book. People postpone this for, like I said, I think it's just uh, an uncomfortable topic. I think also the other thing is not many people are familiar that there is a, you know, a method in the madness to actually do this. Most people think about pricing as an art. I mean, pricing, uh, even in a business school setting, is probably you know, taught as like one chapter in a marketing course. So many CEOs have not been exposed to um, you know, uh, pricing even in their sort of uh, academic career. So I think it's, it's just one of those things which happens to be um, treated as a black box. It doesn't have to be that way. So that was also why we wrote the book. Um, and, and, you know, really want to ma- send the message that is a systematic way to approach this. Um, and, and I think once people know, they are far more welcoming to embrace this change. Hmm. Okay, I agree with everything you just said. Do you have the magic sentence or the magic words that gets entrepreneurs or companies to adopt this concept that says, wow, I need to price early? Mm-hmm. I think the proof is uh, probably in what happens if you don't, right? Uh, if you look around us, probably majority of innovations actually fail. Either they fail because they were the wrong innovations to begin with, or they were innovations that people simply didn't you know, care about, or they were not willing to pay for those kind of innovations. Um, I think we, we ran a, you know, the world's largest uh, study on this topic uh, where we had about 2,000 uh, you know, organizations take part, 40% of them were CEOs, 60 countries were represented. And we asked all sorts of questions on innovation. Uh, but at the highest level, we even asked people, are they in some sort of price compression? You know, 80% said they were. We asked them if they were in a price war. 60% said they were in some sort of price war. We asked them who started it. 90% said the others started it. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> love, love that one. And then we asked them, okay, if you're in this kind of price compression, how do you actually get out of this whole price compression? And the number one way that every uh, you know respondent pretty much said was that they would innovate to survive, innovate to like you know kind of get back to glory days. Uh, this was against a long list of things that they could have done to get out of the price compression. And then we asked a very simple question: to what extent was uh, you know the innovation successful, as in they met revenue or profit targets, or simply just? you know, work to produce some significant impact in the market. And stunningly, 72% of innovations uh, failed or, or were, you know, just didn't meet their revenue or profit targets. That's a pretty big number. And it's not just us saying it. If you go to Harvard Business Review, they'll probably tell you eight in 10 startups fail. The Product Management Association came up with some similar number, like 67% of innovations fail. And then when we started looking at the core reason why these innovations fail is because people thought about commercialization and pricing as an afterthought. And you think about it and in hindsight, you'd say, no wonder they actually failed because people didn't focus on making the money and they probably didn't make the money because they built something that probably people didn't want to pay for. And if you think about pricing earlier on and willingness to pay earlier on, you're really getting a you know, more objective feedback from the market in terms of whether they really need a product and are they willing to pay for something like this. And if, if, if yes, then you know that you're on to something. And we write about, you know, many such stories of successful companies that have done this. This is what the 28% of companies do. We wish this is what the people who had failures would start doing so that they would truly know that they will monetize and not simply keep hoping that they will. Yeah, at, uh, 
excellent, excellent answer. If you think of playing a game, and we know the goal of the game is to win, but we don't know how to score points, mm-hmm. how do you go about playing the game? And pricing is how do you score points? Yep. So, so we have to learn this before we go out and start playing the game. Yep. It's almost like playing the game without understanding uh, the outcome and hoping for the best. Yes, <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So most of when I read your book and most of the conversations that we have are usually around entrepreneurs, uh, maybe mm-hmm. CEOs. Mm-hmm. I think your book is really applicable to product managers. Do you work much with product managers? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, we probably use entrepreneurs and CEOs as like a proxy when we're probably talking about in general as an innovation expert. But truly, the book is a lot about how you can design the product around what customers need, what they value, and what they're willing to pay. In short, around the price. So this is the subtitle of the book, and it's it's a lot about product design. I had the CEO of a, um, uh, like a, of a you know one of the marquee unicorn companies here in the Bay Area read the book, and he came and told me that hey, I thought I was going to read a pricing book, but I learned that this was much more of a product book. But I gained a tremendous amount from this because it was both product and pricing. So I think it is uh, definitely for product managers uh, because we talk about how to take that kind of information and bring that back into your, you know, sort of uh, R&D roadmap, try to prioritize your R&D roadmap based on some of this information and then productize uh, around it. Like how would you make different products for different segments, you know, come up with different offerings uh, and bundle them, et cetera, which are highly product management oriented. Yeah. So I have, I have a personal issue in all of this. And that is that at Pragmatic Marketing, we teach product managers how to create innovative products. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a price course. Yeah. And I'm always trying to convince product managers, you really need to go take price because it's going to help you understand that whole product development side, that product definition side. Yep. So it's, it's that same challenge. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a story that was actually quite uh, uh, stunning and we kind of write about it in the book too. I mean, it was a, CEO of a two-sided marketplace, uh, they were, uh, you know, it's a marketplace, but they were already monetizing on the, you know, seller side, and they wanted to monetize on the buy side. So the CEO asked their team to come up with a product for the buy side. So in classic fashion, these guys went off-site, you know, two days, uh, thousands of posted sticky notes, um, you know, brainstorming meetings. They said, we can't take these many ideas back to the CEO, we'll probably you know, get uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> get shouted at maybe, whatever. But right. uh, they said, okay, we are going to, you know, take a subset of these ideas. They prioritized it somehow based on their own internal thinking. And they went to the CEO and presented like, you know, 30 or 40 different features that they actually wanted to present, uh, uh, wanted to productize. And then the CEO asked them a simple question. You know, how do you know that you would monetize on this particular product? And there was no really good answer. It was just gut feeling and touchy-feely stuff. So the CEO actually commissioned them to go outside of the walls and go and talk to you know potential users, prospects, and even existing customers, trying to understand whether they truly needed this product. You know, would they value it and would they pay for it? And so they went and talked about this and discussed different features. And what they found out to their pleasant surprise was that you know stuff that they thought were was simply awesome and people would pay for it was actually way down the list. Uh, an example of this is uh, we, we talk about a feature called you know, highlighting connection from Facebook. 
And the thesis was something like this. Is as, a, as a buyer, if I know that someone in my Facebook circle is actually going to buy a product from the same seller, that that's credible information, and I'd be willing to pay for it because that increases the authenticity of the seller. Um, well, in principle, it sounds great, but when they validated with their customers, they actually hated that idea for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> right? I mean, they, <laughs> the, some of them were like, I love reading hundreds of reviews and actually coming to an answer. I really don't want to know that there's a shortcut that someone in my Facebook circle bought this product. Or <laughs> there, there, <laughs> there were others who would say, you know, I really don't even want my Facebook circle to actually know that I'm buying this product. And there are people who would say, you know what, this sounds like really cool, but I would never pay for it. So this feature got deprioritized completely, but it would have taken them a uh, you know, reasonable amount of resources to actually do this. But this is just one example. What they actually found out, and this is true with many of the uh, you know, companies that we have worked with, 20% of features that uh, drive 80% of value often. And if you can identify those, you can probably focus on you know, building the right product with the right user experience and not really spend valuable resources on stuff that people might not really care about. And understanding that really helps, you know, prioritizing the R&D roadmap. And it's such a critical aspect of like, you know, building a product so that you actually keep the focus on what is material and will move the needle. Yeah. We do a survey every year as well. And one of the questions that we asked was, have you built features that nobody uses? (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think the answer, if I remember correctly, the answer was something like 37% of people said yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? So that doesn't surprise me. The, the other funny thing that we've found through some of our surveys is the stuff sometimes that takes, which is the hardest to build, often has the lowest willingness to pay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like stuff that you can actually build faster often has more value. I yes. mean, so I think using a perceived value lens is important for like, you know, productizing and, you know, like prioritizing the roadmap, especially when most organizations are resource constrained. Okay. Uh, So let me ask, uh, I'm going to jump into some tougher questions if I may. Sure. Bring it on. How do I I price a feature? So I already have a product. I'm thinking about putting out a new feature. How do I price (laughs) a feature? Yeah. So basically you could do, um, I mean, if you already have a product in the market, then uh, you have two choices when you have a feature. You can probably say that you'll add the feature and preserve the price, which is itself a bit of like, you know, kind of uh, increasing price because without that, you might be in some sort of competitive pressure, right? Right. That is one thing to think about. The other thing is if you truly have an opportunity to uh, sort of increase your price because you added more net value, there are a couple of things. You could either version your products in such a way that you have your existing product and then a newer product which has you know a few more features so that you have uh, an alternate offer to upsell your existing customers or even attract new customers and then you find out you know what is the incremental willingness to pay for these features and in chapter four uh, we actually list many different ways but uh, you know I mean you could uh, it starts with having the simple willingness to pay conversation all the way to like having you know, uh, trade-offs with customers to understand whether they would pay. Uh, the trade-off exercise in this case would be pretty straightforward in the sense that you would, you know, you could run a, a survey with your customers trying to understand if your product was priced at X and a product uh, and, and with a net additional feature, are they willing to pay X plus Y? 
and you need to find what that why is. And if they're not willing to spend the why, then you probably are not um, you know, really uh, building a feature that people would pay for. But the methods that we describe for either a product or a feature remain pretty much largely the same. So it doesn't change? Not really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so when I'm teaching, I often get the question, well, we have to build that feature because that's table stakes. Mm-hmm. How do you address that? So there are certain features that could be table stakes in the sense that without those features, you would probably not uh, you know, use the product. But my advice would be to actually figure out what could you do to make those features you know, stand out beyond table stakes and like, what can you do to enhance it so that there's an opportunity to now you know, uh, better market it and also tap into like incremental willingness to pay. Um, and also think about versioning the product. So like, for instance, you could say that the feature which is table stakes goes into the entry-level product, but then you could build versions which, with more enhanced functionality where you can actually then have a, uh, you know, a bit of an assortment to tap into multiple segments. Excellent. And I love the idea of taking your table stakes product and trying to find a way to differentiate it or your table stakes feature, I yeah. should say. Yeah. I mean, take cell phones, for instance. Camera is probably like a table stakes feature. I mean, if you don't yes. have a camera and a cell phone, probably no one's going to buy it nowadays. But then can you differentiate it? I mean, like, can you actually make a much better camera? Can you actually make a panoramic view? Can you do a 360-degree three, you know, VR? I mean, those are like different things that you can do even with the table stakes feature like a camera. But then, of course, uh, based on that, you might be able to, uh, you know, have a basic version of a phone with a camera and then more maybe an advanced version with uh, all kinds of bells and whistles or at least focus on like how to differentiate. Yes. Okay. When, uh, well, okay. Here's a hard one for you, but maybe not. What about pure science, actual research? Do you expect companies to put a price on that? before they even know what they're going to come up with. And so I'm thinking of, say, IBM's Watson or the Bell Lab Semiconductor, things like that. Um, so let me make sure I understand your question. So you're saying put a price on researchers and should they even do a particular research project based on whether there is an appetite in the market? Yes. Okay, I think that is, uh, that's a great question. I would probably think that there is, I mean, there has to be some room for like some fundamental research or, you know, science, but that at some point you probably need to make a reality check to see if you're, you know, building something that is, uh, you know, going to be commercially viable. Um, I don't think uh, what we are saying is to prevent the, like, you know, earlier ideations and the pure research stuff. We're saying, yes, all of that should be there, but before you start, you know, uh, productizing some of this, you actually want to also have a outside in view from a customer standpoint, trying to see if they need the innovation, whether they value it and whether they're willing to pay for it. Um, and without that, you're probably just going to build a product, you know, and then hoping that marketing and sales can actually sell the product. But the point is to have that earlier check, uh, but not to stop the pure research and ideation process. In fact, that should exist because that's how ideas evolve. Okay, excellent. I don't recall, I've read the book a while ago and I don't recall if this was in the book, but I always find it challenging when people say we have to choose a pricing model. Mm-hmm. How do you, what advice do you have for what pricing model to choose? Yeah, my first advice is that 
this is probably the one of the most critical things and uh, often uh, overlooked. Uh, so I think paying specific attention to this topic is is critical. We even, in fact, uh, you know, uh, have a tongue-in-cheek way of saying it in the book. We say that how you charge is often way more important than how much you charge. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, but that's a really important message. Um, and uh, we, we talk about different ways to actually even, you know, quickly assess, uh, you know, what kind of pricing models might make sense. Uh, my overall uh, recommendations would be that thinking about, you know, how to orient your pricing model towards the value that your products are delivering so that you have a, you, you know, you're, you're measuring your price based on the value. So metering based on that, for instance, uh, and not just uh, think of it as a cost plus kind of uh, um, situation. Uh, we talk about various examples. One, one that really comes to mind, which is uh, super interesting and drives the point home, is is from Michelin. And and in Michelin, when they you know came up with this super innovative tires that were supposed to last you know 20% longer, yes. if they had gone and asked the market, we want 20% uh, price increase. There's no chance they would have gotten it. It was it's just simply one of the most price sensitive markets out there, and there are too many tires, and people are not necessarily convinced to pay premium sometimes. And these were actually tires for truckers to move goods from point A to point B. What they did was fascinating. They actually changed their pricing model to a you know per kilometer or per mile basis. Uh, and this was a big success in the industry because the truckers loved that model for two reasons. One, they could pay as they go and uh, they didn't have the they, they didn't need the initial investment. But the reason that really also worked really well is now they could, you know, pass through these costs to their customers, saying that my job took 1,200 miles and this is the tire cost, something that was completely not possible uh, in a different model where you're just charging based on a per tire because no one would actually accept a tire as a part of an invoice line item. But now that they were charged, they could actually pass it through and they loved it. Huge success. The tires lasted 20% more. Uh, and and Michelin got back their money. If they hadn't focused on uh, you know uh, on the pricing model, they would have uh, uh, shortchanged themselves in some ways, right? So, and 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 how to actually get there? Uh, the simple way to actually do this, and we write about how to actually do this a bit more in the book. But you know, if you give people break-even uh, exercises, as in different pricing models where the math actually adds up to the same. And then uh, and, and ask them, which of these do you prefer or are you indifferent across these options? It's a simple question to ask. You know, if you're a rational human being, you'd say, okay, the math actually adds up to the same $100 per month or, you know, 1200 bucks a year or like, you know, whatever is all the same. You'd say that it's fine, I'm indifferent. But we are yet to find a situation where the indifference actually wins. There's always a perception among people as to like which model is more appealing and once you understand that, then you have a model that works for your customer and for yourself, and that's the winning formula. Huh. Awesome answer. And when we think about pricing models, let me throw out three words. And mm -hmm. can you define these or try to describe the difference? So we sure. have a we have a business model, pricing model, and pricing strategy. Uh, the the core difference is that the business model is the sort of overarching. You know, how are you want? How do you want to? you know, sort of run your uh, business. It's like, um, if you think about like some concepts such as the business model canvas or the business model generation, I think there's a lot of literature around how to think about a business model. 
is is basically how a company would overall you know generate revenue from various things that they are doing and 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 the way to run their business um, the pricing model is a bit more tactical in the sense that you're saying okay how do you charge for this in order to make those kind of revenues so in our michelin example it was the per kilometer or per mile that's a bit more of a pricing model which actually directly ties itself to more of like the revenue or or revenue aspects pricing strategy is what you actually decide uh, to do in terms of you know your overall price in the market and we talk about you know there are really only three different pricing strategies that work well one is more of a you know penetration strategy which is a bit like you know amazon for instance where you're trying to penetrate the market you're running on probably you know laser thin margins but then you're going for the volume and and uh, your your pricing is oriented in such a way that you're taking in more market share um and then there's probably the skimming kind of pricing strategy which is a bit like the apple and the you know the iphones where you or even the video games and other kind of categories where you would launch it at a higher price attract the early adopters and then gradually over a period of time you know the price is lowered mm-hmm. or it's lowered and then you bring alternate versions to sustain the higher price either way you're trying to skim the market or the other way is to like simply you know maximize uh, a particular goal like a revenue or a profit or a you know uh, or a customer lifetime value and choose a pricing strategy which which actually does one of those things um often um you know that's that's you need to first define what your business model is think about what the pricing strategy is then think about okay how do you charge based on the pricing strategy and the business model and then think about how much to charge i think that would be the logical sequence okay in my mind i've been thinking about this a lot lately and in my mind it feels like a pricing model i i absolutely agree it's what are you going to charge for or how do you charge Mm-hmm. it almost feels like the pricing model is going to require some set of infrastructure. Matter when we're trying to measure willingness to pay, you have several different methods, but but people often want to ask the question, how much would you pay? And mm-hmm. we know that most people are going to game the answer. They're not going to answer that very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question I often try or use once in a while is, how much do you think other people would pay for this? Mm-hmm. What do you think of that question? And do you have any other questions that you think do a good job at getting directly to that willingness to pay? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's uh, the way you are probably asking is an excellent way of asking because it takes the emotion out of the decision making and you're putting this as a context of someone uh, someone else is paying. So people tend to think a bit more fair value when they think that but the savvy person is probably going to still lowball an answer <laughs> uh, in some ways. um but there are a couple of ways to probably get to the same uh, you know kind of willingness to pay and the way to ask those questions uh, and we write about this in chapter 4 but in a nutshell um, you could ask people you know what is an acceptable price for for this product i mean first of all you have to describe all the value for the product you know the blueprints the prototypes whatever you know get them excited because you're kind of having a sales conversation before even building the product and then you ask them okay would you pay for this and what do you think is an acceptable price if would you pay for this if they say no then the most important question is why and and that's probably going to give you a lot more answer on how to change your products and how to you know sort of uh, um, you know adapt to like a or pivot uh, to a different version if they say yes follow that up with like 
what do you think is an acceptable price? And and I would say that everyone loves to negotiate with themselves. Everyone would lowball the answer. We get that, you know, clock the answer, um, and then you follow that with uh, uh, another simple question, saying, "What would you think is an expensive price for this product?" And then follow up with, "What do you think is a prohibitively expensive price?" What we have seen from you know thousands of projects that we have done is that. You know, the acceptable price is, tends to be around a price that people are super comfortable paying um, and they love your uh, price, not only your product. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, expensive happens to be around at least what they should be paying because that's more aligned towards value. They don't hate you, they don't love you, but it's, it's what they would pay. And prohibitively expensive tends to be the price that they would laugh you out of the room. But even asking this question gives you a range of like, you know, willingness to pay that you can actually think about how to productize to specific you know, willingness to pay, uh, and you would actually see um, a range. And if that range makes sense, then you should go ahead with, you know, building some of these, uh, you know, products. And and another way probably just uh, to throw out there is uh, just kind of like your other kind of thing, asking pricing across relative indexes makes a lot of sense. For instance, if you're a SaaS company, and let's say the customer that you're trying to sell to you know, has uh, Salesforce or some other known software, you can always ask, okay, do you have, you know, Salesforce installed? And they would say, yes, it's okay. How do you compare, if Salesforce was indexed at 100 at value, you know, where would you index our particular product in, 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 in overall value for your business? And if Salesforce was indexed at 100 in price, where do you think we should be? So that actually puts people in a relative mindset and they can actually give some better responses. And depending on the value that you're generating overall, their willingness to pay is also in, put in a bit more context. That's another way to ask the same question um, uh, and, uh, you know, sort of at least get to some quick and dirty answers to at least see if you're on the right track. What do you think is an expensive price? Because in my mind, if, if I were to answer that question, I think what I'd be saying is at this price, I'd be indifferent between buying it and not buying it. Mm-hmm. Or that's the most you would actually pay for it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good. Before we go, is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners here, mostly our listeners are product managers, by the way, product marketers. Mm -hmm. I would probably say that, um, I mean, there are a few things that are important takeaways from, from, uh, you know, our, our experience. When we talk about products and, you know, product managers and innovation, I think we started with the scary message of 72% of innovations actually fail. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to uh, end with a good note. Uh, the good news is that they only fail in four ways. <laughs> if it fails in, you know, if your products monetizing innovation failure happens in, you know, too many number of ways, then it obviously becomes a, you know, kind of a nightmare situation to even understand what to do. It only fails in four ways, and we talk about this, uh, and we call them feature shocks, um, you know, undeads, hidden gems, and, uh, you know, minivations. Um, and uh, I welcome the reader to probably, you know, look at those. And the fifth category is obviously the breakthrough. And, and a lot of what we write in the book is nine steps and an integrated framework to get to the breakthrough innovation, which starts with uh, having the, uh, you know, willingness to pay conversation early, all the way down to like uh, you know, preserving your price integrity and not having a knee-jerk reaction after you launch the product. So a lot of lessons there. Uh, would welcome any feedback, uh, um, you know, from the audience. Excellent. Excellent. Madam, th- thank you so much for your time today. 
Um, if anyone wants more information, where can they go? Yeah, so there are a couple of resources. They can go to monetizinginnovation.com. Uh, we, have, we have some snippets from the book and also some uh, you know, case studies, etc. But there's also a way to reach us through the Monetizing Innovation uh, you know, website if they have any you know, specific uh, you know, feedback. Uh, that would be one way. Um, they could also go to the Simon Kucha website, which is uh, um, you know, um, uh, our uh, firm's website. Uh, and lastly, they can, uh, if they want to follow uh, us on social media, on LinkedIn and Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Madhavan SF. Uh, so if that's probably another way to keep in touch with what's going on. Excellent. Thank you. And to our listeners, first, I really do recommend Madhavan's book. So Monetizing Innovation, get it, read it. It is fabulous. And I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please send any comments you might have to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Pragmatic Live. <laughs>